welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here, here, news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater, and we are here in the night of Maine in a winter that does not seem to want to end talking about the springtime. Uh, don't mind my rooster. It is actually uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time as I record this. Uh, we've lost sense of time. What can I tell you? Um, we have been featuring, uh, this could be the second week of our friends at the Leviathan Chronicles. Uh, Christoph Laputka and his team have released season two of Leviathan. Um, it is a fantastic accomplishment. It's this epic, uh, globe-trotting story of immortals and intrigue, uh, multi-faction adventure uh, in, in this huge sweeping series. Um, season two is quite a bit darker, quite a bit more lush in the sound design aspects. Um, so much going on, and they really have their groove. Now, uh, season one was also equally excellent. Um, 25 chapters uh, for Leviathan Chronicle season one. As Leviathan Chronicle season two is uh, builds pretty much immediately after the first season ends and takes us right back into the world of the immortals it is just a fantastic piece uh, we have the privilege of giving you the jump on chapter 27 this is the first time that it goes out apart from those who have paid for the uh, director's cut edition from christoph uh chapter 27 leviathan chronicles the second installment of uh what you'll hear uh, later in the show we also have an exclusive interview with christoph as well as sound designer robert and shore uh really excited to share my chat with those two folks with you guys um first off though we do have our promo we've got a month ago ish for our uh contest war of the world 75th anniversary excellent prizes um from isotope listen to our friend rich fish tuck tell you more on october 30th 1938 orson wells gave us the best halloween present ever the original radio broadcast of hg wells the war of the worlds in 2013 Convergence, Oral Stage Studios, Radio Drama Revival, and Isotope Incorporated have teamed up to announce an audio theater contest in celebration of the 75th anniversary of the scariest radio program ever. We're looking for original audio dramas that capture the spirit and essence of War of the Worlds. Submissions must be no more than 15 minutes in length and include arrival by meteorite, tripod locomotion, massive destruction, and a natural biological solution. Three winners will receive prizes generously donated by Isotope Incorporated. Third place wins a copy of Ozone 5 Standard. Second place, a copy of Iris Plus 2. And first prize is a full copy of RX2 Standard. Submissions are due on May Day, of course. Winning entries will be announced and played at Convergence Con in July. Full contest rules and submission requirements are available at www.waroftheworlds75.com. That's waroftheworlds75.com. All right, check it out. Good company, good fun. Waroftheworlds75.com. And without further ado, we get into Leviathan Chronicles Chapter 27. Uh, stay tuned for later in the show where we have an interview with Christoph Laputka and Robin Shore. Also should mention, by the nature of it, this has going to have spoilers. Uh, if you've not heard all of Leviathan Chronicles up to this, uh, maybe you want to skip forward to the interview. The interview does not have spoilers. It just talks a bit generally about the world and the production process. But if you want to get in right into it, this is excellent stuff. Chapter 27 of Leviathan. Enjoy. The Leviathan Chronicles, Season 2. 
Chapter 27 Ascension of Necessity The sky above Leviathan City was filled with dark clouds and gloom, reflecting the anxious mood of the city as a whole. Bits of clear sky could be seen in the distance peeking out above the far-flung Genesis Zone, where a dedicated troupe of mineralogists occupied themselves with the expansion of the Great Cavern. But overall, the long grey clouds infused a sense of melancholy to the normally inspirational sky above Leviathan. Now, 12 hours after the city had been placed on security status diamond, relegating all citizens to their homes or nearby collapse centers, a few bold souls ventured back upon the streets to assess the damage levied upon their beloved city. Work crews were still repairing the destruction on Tweedle Boulevard, and many of the large Zephyr-class vehicles in the West Hangar Bay had been damaged by Harlequin's dramatic escape, thus slowing the influx of fresh supplies from the surface as well as the undersea fishing trawlers that provided the fresh seafood that made up so much of the Leviathan diet. But worst of all, even from the distance, a large, gaping hole could be seen on the side of Leviathan Cathedral, surrounded by crumbling rock. Two of the large expanses of stunning stained glass that stood over 60 feet in height were blown out, with only tiny glistening shards remaining. But despite the turmoil and the moody sky lingering above, the deep purple grass of Leviathan's Abel Park swayed reassuringly beside the bright yellow marigolds that framed the cobblestone walkway through the park. A waterfall in the park's west end fell from more than a quarter of the way up the cavern wall to accumulate in a serene, reflecting pond, illuminated from below by gleaming emerald lumiflora. Near the center of the park, a cheerful statue of a young goddess playing with her beloved ferret usually brought a smile to Susan Nesterham's face, but today it did little to dissuade the anxiety in her conversation with her neighbor, Cynthia Court. I heard she's unconscious. I heard she's passed and they don't want to tell anyone yet. That can't be. We would have felt something, Cynthia. Maybe. Maybe not. What would you do? Do with what? What would you do if you're right? If Evangeline really is dead? You mean if I only had 20 or 30 years to live? I'm not sure. I haven't had to think about it for the last few centuries. I, I, I guess I would seek out my family in Gibraltar to see them before I died. Your family's been dead for 200 years. I meant I'd seek out the descendants. My sister's children, or I guess her children's children, or their children. Well, you know what I mean. They'd never believe you. They'd think you were just some mad person, probably have you arrested or something dreadful like that. You know, we don't belong up there anymore. Well, if you're so smart, what would you do? I'd try to find Senshin or those that left in the rebellion. They've gotten used to life up there by now. They could help us. That's madness. Evangeline said Senshin and his rebellion murder immortals when they find them on the surface. He'd murder you. Perhaps. But if you're right, Cynthia, I'm going to die anyway. The pair walked in silence for a few more minutes and eventually left the park. Did you feel that? I did. What was it? I don't know. You don't think that? There! The cavern wall of Leviathan City exploded 800 feet above Weller Street. A giant spray of rock and seawater showered down upon the street. Boulders the size of automobiles rained down on the citizens, obliterating the structures beneath. One mammoth chunk of the cavern wall plummeted down, demolishing a smooth white semi-oval building that served as Leviathan's modern art gallery. 
Huge pieces of the structure flew everywhere as Susan and Cynthia ran for their lives. The pair sprinted to the collapse shelter they knew was only a block away. Cynthia, come on! Run! We have to run! Cynthia! Susan frantically looked to her side and was astonished to not see her best friend running alongside her. A fine mist of deep seawater now cascaded through the southwest quarter of Leviathan City and stunned Susan's eyes as she desperately scanned the chaotic street for her friend. Cynthia! Cynthia! Susan raced back towards Weller Street, turning sharply around a five-story fortified teepee that served as the shamanistic research center for Leviathan. She stopped short in her tracks and saw her dear friend for over a century and a half lying face down on the street. A two-foot-wide titanium support beam from the collapsed art gallery was protruding through her friend's abdomen. Cynthia, my love, Susan Nestorhan didn't have the luxury of dwelling on the loss of a friendship she had warmly assumed would last another thousand years. High above her, just under a mile towards the city center, another explosion in the upper cavern wall tore through Leviathan. The boulder that fired out of the cave ceiling punched a hole in the carefully illustrated sky. Bits of Lumaflora fell downward, shattering the illusion of clouds floating thousands of feet above them. The boulder also smashed through one of the sky tubes running across the Leviathan City skyline. The push pod that was racing across had no time to slow its usual speed of over 70 miles per hour. With the sky tube cracked open and pointing downward, the push pod sailed outward unfettered into the city sky like a bullet shot out of a barrel. It plunged another thousand feet, landing two inches in front of Susan. And then proceeded to slide over her for the next 100 meters. Damn it, damn it, damn it. It's all down to rot so fast, so damn fast. Didn't even get a bloody warning signal. Into here. Mayor, it's Chief Engineer Denson. I just wanted to let you know that all group chiefs are now assembled along with their aides in the Undercity War Room. We're awaiting your arrival, sir. Understood. Thank you, Marcus. I'm on my way. Oh, and Marcus. Yes, sir. Is... is he there? If you're referring to the new military prime officer, Khan, yes, he's here. He looks like he could take on a bull shark and win. He brought his lieutenant, Keitha Watson, with him. She's quite nice on the eyes, but I don't mind telling you that she acts as ferocious as Khan. They were both sworn in a week ago after news of Gravelar's death. You can imagine their reaction towards the city's calamities. Splendid. Who else is there? Well, uh, my underchief Astrid Ansler, of course. She's done a remarkable job handling the crisis and hasn't slept in 30 hours. She knows the Undercity grid chapter and verse. Uh, Also, both representatives from Social Chief... Juliet Brenton and Underchief Pedro Santana just arrived. <laughs> that little Spanish bulldog looked fired up as usual. And Chief Juliet Benton? Serene and quiet as usual, frankly. I find it rather comforting to have a calming presence in the room. Where are you right now, sir? I just finished surveying the wreckage on Weller Street. Oh, absolutely horrifying. I'm entering a lift tube to the Undercity on Lafferty Avenue. No! I, I mean, no. Don't take the lift tube. Why on earth not? We're still getting operational errors throughout the city. You could get trapped, and it would take us hours to get you out manually. The city's a bit haywire right now, sir. I'll I'll give you a full briefing when you arrive. Uh, understood. I'll take the stairs past the Venotius Cafe on Richards. Uh, damn it. 
Leviathan City Mayor Zachariah Sinter hurried down the stone steps leading down to the first level of the Undercity. The steps were rarely used and some of the edges crumbled under his rapid footsteps. Mayor Sinter detested having to squeeze through the narrow access ways and tight corners that led to the Undercity War Room. Sadly, the current state of affairs within Leviathan left him little choice. Typically, the normal War Room Council Chamber of Leviathan extended out grandly above the city, integrated into the high cavern wall, but due to the imminent risk of structural instability. The emergency meeting was now being held in a modified blast bunker deep within the undercity of Leviathan. The room hadn't been used in decades. The mayor stormed into the chamber which was dominated by a long crystalline table that stretched far enough to seat 15 people or more. The room shimmered from the light of the 4x5 grid of 20 video monitors that displayed live feeds of the repair activity in Leviathan. Hover drones could be seen floating high above the city, applying layers of molten mag steel to repair the crumbling cavern ceiling. Along the sides of the table sat the group heads of each major division of Leviathan, military, social, engineering, as well as their immediate lieutenants. Between the recent collapse of the Great Cavern War and the civil system failures that plagued Leviathan's infrastructure due to the computer virus implanted by Banu, Mayor Sinter had his hands very full. All six people in the room stood as Would someone please tell me how the hell we could have a roof collapse? For more than a century, we've had a quadruple redundancy on both the Shield's power grid and all airlock portals. Correction, sir. We had quadruple redundancies. The Great Cavern is largely kept intact by the strength of the underlying rock that forms it. There are, however, several structural weak points within that geological matrix, specifically around the entry points, vehicle launch ports, and certain sections of the cavern ceiling. For years, we've reinforced those points with a quantum field generated by the super conduit grid beneath the city streets. Obviously, it takes a great deal of power to maintain the field integrity. In this case, the infecting virus induced a random power failure by causing phantom outages, thereby tricking the AI into rerouting its power away from the conduit grid. So what are the odds it happens again? Are we safe now, Marcus? Far from it. I've placed independent power generators at all critical points on the grid, but they won't last forever. Our power grid is growing less efficient by the hour and therefore consuming more and more power. The virus is essentially increasing the level of entropy within our civil management AI each minute. As the computer system accelerates into disorder, more structural failures will occur. Essentially, the virus is causing our city to careen into chaos and will soon destroy Leviathan. How long do we have? It's difficult to say, but I, I can't imagine that we have more than a week. Two at most. The mayor sank back into his chair and stared at the council before him. Sinter was technically third in command within the administrative hierarchy of Leviathan City, behind Viceroy Banu and, of course, Lady Evangeline. However, his responsibility was technically limited to the domestic affairs of the city. The military branch of Leviathan enjoyed a direct reporting line to Evangeline, which, considering her current state of incapacitation, left them with unchecked power. Prime Military Officer Gamsuk Khan spoke first. This is madness. Center. We can't continue another minute like this. We have a responsibility to the immortal population of Leviathan. If the virus can't be stopped, then I will assume military command of the city. You don't have the authority, Khan! Don't think for a second that because Evangelist- I have the full authority to assume power if the city is in imminent danger of being destroyed. Pedro Santana, the short but fiery underchief of the Leviathan social group, stood up and lashed out at Khan. The city isn't under attack, and you are using our latest condition as an excuse to assert the power over this city. And you don't think for a second that you will get away with it. Prime Officer Khan glared back at Santana with a look that eagerly 
eagerly invited a physical response. Pedro had been a painter living outside Pamplona, Spain, and Khan had been a tribal warrior in Mongolia. Santana knew Khan viewed the artistic pursuits of the Leviathan citizenry as an indulgence granted by the romantic inclinations harbored by Evangeline. Khan's striking blonde lieutenant, Keitha Watson, spoke next. The Prime Officer and I believe that it's imperative that we initiate evacuation procedures at once. The serene social chief, Juliette Brenton, raised her slender hand up, bringing the room to silence. I strongly disagree, Lieutenant Watson. At a slender six feet tall, with gently curling chestnut hair to her mid-back, Juliet could easily attract attention, but instead deferred it to the citizens whom she supported. Evacuating the city is tantamount to abandoning it. By your suggestion, you are assuring the destruction of Leviathan and everything we have worked to create here. If Lady Evangeline were conscious, she would suggest utilizing the full resources of the city to solve the crisis. We are strongest as a community, together in our home, not scattered on the surface to be preyed upon by mortals. I agree. I agree fully. Whether you agree or not is irrelevant. I won't allow this city to disintegrate due to the inaction and fear from a small group of individuals that have become enamored of their own bureaucracy. Evangeline Liefrich was a courageous... What? The Underchief of Engineering, Astrid Ansler, stood to shout at the Mongolian Prime Officer. May I remind you that her ladyship is still among the living. If Evangeline was conscious, there is no way she would authorize a mass exodus of the immortal Our population Our point is would... precisely that she is not conscious. The citizenry deserves leadership and a clear resolution to this crisis that threatens our survival. Evacuation is the safest and most prudent course of action given your apparent inability to stem the destructive effects of this computer virus on our civil infrastructure. Now, my officer and I are Council! Khan, you do not have the authority to evacuate the city. Not without our support. You know that. Even if your mandate allows the military to assume temporary control of our administration in the event of a catastrophe, you'll still need our help to mobilize the citizenry. I think you overestimate your influence within the citizenry. And I think you underestimate the panic created by telling people to leave the homes they've had for centuries because our own viceroy turned out to be a traitor. Benno was always sympathetic to the military branch of Leviathan. Don't think that connection will go unnoticed by our citizenry. No. There'll be no evacuation, at least not at this point. In fact, I'm going to recommend something even more to the contrary, a retrenchment. We need to utilize every resource, every immortal mind at our disposal to solve this crisis. I'm ordering a full recall of all Dark Water agents undercover on the surface and all Leviathan citizens currently on surface leave. When everyone is back within Leviathan, we'll create a task force under my supervision like to- Like bloody hell! To deal with this crisis and dismantle or repair the AI system that now threatens us. I won't allow that. The Darkwater agents fall under my jurisdiction. It is our officers. You're wrong, Khan. The Darkwater team falls under the political division of Leviathan. Which is right now without a leader. I am the political division of Leviathan. As mayor of Leviathan, I have full authority to... This is a closed meeting. The guards should have stopped you before... Oh, I had a word with the guards. I told them there was some important news I had to deliver. And also that I might be bringing cupcakes. McAllen, Orsel, and Anton walked calmly into the war room, feeling the eyes of the entire council burning into them. Gentlemen, I believe most of you are familiar with Miss McAllen, Orsel. We are. Then I think you'll agree that she should have a place at this table. Over I don't see... Let me make my position very clear. I know I'm not a part of this committee, 
and I know I have only recently come to Leviathan. But with every fiber of my being, I care about this city as if it were my own. My only wish is to preserve and to protect Leviathan and the Eden Initiative long enough for Evangeline to regain control and reassume power as the immortal leader of our people. Our I beg your pardon. Very well and good, but that's However, in the unlikely event that Lady Evangeline does not recover from her injuries, I will be taking her place as leader of Leviathan, at least until the situation is <laughs> What does this bitch think she is? I think that I may be the only person on the planet that has the power to save the lives of every single immortal in Leviathan City. Have you asked yourselves how Leviathan will continue when the citizens begin to die? When the friendships and relationships that have existed for centuries disintegrate to the death toll that your council refuses to stem? They'll ask why you didn't put into effect a succession plan that Evangeline herself wanted enacted. And let me facilitate communication with the life-giving starstones that we have depended on for a thousand years. The citizens that you claim to represent will want to know why. And I promise you that sooner rather than later, those same citizens will eventually grant me the power that you are seeking to deny me now. And when I do get it, it's not going to be pretty for the people in this room. She's trying to blackmail us. The citizenry of Leviathan will never stand for such an illegitimate and brazen attempt to use her power. You'll never get away with this. For once, we agree. Uh, if I may... Anton stepped forward and pointed to the large amethyst ring he was wearing. That's where you are precisely wrong. This entire conversation is being video recorded and is currently being viewed by Maestro Viberucci and Lorelei in their studio as we speak. If McAllen is not granted control, this video of you specifically denying her power will be broadcast across the cavern sky and it will be you that is blamed for the loss of our immortality and you that will be vilified. For now, all she wants is to have her ideas heard. Now, may I suggest that Miss Orsall be granted a seat at this council's table? You're completely out of line, Anton. You continue to be as treasonous as ever. You and your rebellion vermin can- She may sit near me. Or by me. Both Chief Juliet Brenton and Pedro Santana stood up. Or me. Chief Engineer Denson was surprised to see this sudden rebellious streak from his second-in-command, who was normally quite quiet. Under Chief Ansler was a bit of a bookworm that excelled at the analytical portion of engineering. <sighs> he sighed and stood as well. I think given McAllen's unique status within Leviathan, we can at least listen to what she has to say. What say you, Mayor? Oh, for fuck's sake, Marcus. Proceed. The council fell silent, and McAllen slowly walked to the head of the table. The military group of Lieutenant Watson and Prime Officer Khan said nothing, but stared intensely at her. Members of the council, the immortal world is in crisis. We know now that our society has been infected from within. Viceroy Bennu was corrupted by the Seraxian aliens that Evangeline had been hiding deep within Leviathan Cathedral. Although she currently cannot speak, I believe Evangeline had very good reasons for detaining the aliens within Leviathan. And what do you suspect those were? We can't be sure. But my suspicion is that she thought they represented some sort of threat. If they were in league with Bennu, then they must have something to do with the virus that's infecting our city's AI. What is it you propose, McAllen? We need to find the aliens. Find out where they are right now. They were able to escape through a keyhole, but we don't know where it led. They represent the best chance we have of saving Leviathan as well as Evangeline. What do you mean? This is the latest report from the Med Tower. Anton touched the data pad he was holding, and three of the screens on the far wall filled with medical charts regarding Evangeline. Her brain activity has been declining for the last 12 hours. Look at her heartbeat. It's so erratic. And what does this have to do with the aliens, McAllen? It's simple. We find the aliens, we'll find a starstone. 
Right now, the city doesn't have one. The only way to heal Evangeline will be with a Starstone. The only way to assure that our population can maintain its immortality is by finding a Starstone. And for that, we need the aliens. Where exactly on Earth do you expect to find these aliens, McCallum? Right now, I... I'm not exactly sure, but it is my hope that we'll be able to discern some clues from the chamber where Evangeline kept the aliens prisoner. I've already had my engineering team go over that area of the cathedral. From what we can tell, the Soraxian aliens jumped through a keyhole that was powered outside of Leviathan. It would appear that the corresponding keyhole was somehow destroyed on the other end. Without it, we have no way of knowing where the aliens could have transported. We need to find them in order to save Leviathan. Let's say you're right, McKellen. Let's say you can find the aliens. What in the goddess's name makes you think they'll help us? We kept them prisoner here for a thousand years. Why would they possibly cooperate with Lieutenant us? Lieutenant Watson surprisingly makes a good point. The lieutenant stared daggers at the mayor. They might not cooperate with me, but they might listen to a small strike force led by Anton and myself. Prime Officer Khan, I'll need four of your best soldiers ready to deploy in 12 hours. All eyes in the room widened when they heard McAllen directly requisition the Prime Officer. Social Group Chief Juliet Brenton permitted a wide smile to creep across her lips, while Engineering Underchief Ansler's mouth dropped as she fixed her glasses again and stared at her knees. Military Underchief Watson bolted out of her chair. How dare you give orders to the Prime Officer! This time it was Prime Officer Khan who raised his hand up, calling for silence. You're a pushy bitch. Watch your fucking mouth, Khan! If it's okay, Anton. Yes, Prime Officer, I might be a pushy bitch, but I don't want your job, and I don't want to control this city, and I don't want to be the leader of Leviathan. You're not. But Evangeline asked me to take command if something should happen to her. She sensed a storm was coming to Leviathan. For that reason, she named me her successor. This council was not made aware of these succession plans. We can't name you as leader. I am the leader of Leviathan. Or at least I will be at the end of the day when we hold a citywide meeting where you support me as special council chair of Leviathan. As I said, I don't want to run this city. I just want the immortal race to survive. That won't happen without me or Evangeline. Therefore, you can think of us as one of the same. So for the time being, I am the leader of Leviathan, and I say we need to find the aliens to obtain a Starstone. The war room fell silent, and Khan stared at McCallan, measuring her carefully. Let's just say for a moment that I give you what you want. Where exactly do you intend on taking four of my best soldiers? I don't know that yet. I need a little bit more time. Time is exactly what this city no longer has. Forgive me if I find your plan less than promising, McAllen. You forget, Mayor Center. We have one person who knows exactly where the other side of the keyhole led and where the aliens might be. We need to speak with Mai Lee. New York City. Damn it. Rebecca Kinderman was late. Her job at the New York Public Library had kept her 20 minutes past her intended departure. She worked in the rare books department and had been waiting to sign for a package from Sotheby's containing a first edition copy of Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. She sprinted out of her office onto Fifth Avenue, pausing only to give a playful wave to Patience and Fortitude, the two stone lions that stood sentry outside the library. Knowing she was late, Rebecca held the smallest modicum of hope that she might catch a cab going east on 42nd Street. 
But as she suspected, the slightest drop of rain caused every cab in New York to go off duty or be already occupied. And of course you don't have an umbrella. Never have an umbrella. Growing increasingly wet, she made her way to Grand Central Station to catch the six train uptown, which was invariably delayed due to flooding on the tracks. The city that never sleeps reached untold levels of congestion whenever heavy rain struck Manhattan. Excuse me. Hey, watch your hand. Sorry. This, excuse me, this is my stop. Can you just, just move a bit? I gotta get out. As Rebecca exited on 86th Street and Lexington Avenue, the M86 bus lumbered past her, launching a filthy puddle of brown rainwater onto the sidewalk. Missing her legs, but soaking the gym bag she was carrying. I didn't really want to go to the gym tonight anyway. She turned right on Madison Avenue and walked another two blocks before entering a doctor's office on the ground floor of a pre-war apartment building. He's waiting for you in his office, dear. Hi, Dr. Pisker. Hello, Rebecca. I'm so sorry I'm late, doctor. The traffic will... I mean, the rain is It's what... okay, Rebecca. You're my last patient today, and I could stay a little late. Why don't you sit down? Oh, thank you. So, how are you feeling this week, Rebecca? I'm feeling good. Better, I guess. I'm glad to hear that. Now tell me how you're really feeling. But I just told you that- Rebecca, please. Rebecca stared at her psychiatrist that she'd been seeing for almost a decade. I've been feeling very settled during the day. My job at the library has been fine. Well, not fine, but fine. I, uh, applied for that promotion, like you said. I sense a but. But the nightmares haven't stopped. Is the medication... The medication is getting me asleep and keeping me there. But I can't escape them. Escape what? My dreams, Doctor. Oh, has there been any variation? No. No substantive variation. It's just I'm seeing more of it. Some parts are getting clearer. The fog? Still there. But there's... Less of it, somehow. Explain to me what you're able to see now. The dream still starts off the same way. I'm walking home from school. I can't tell if it's middle school or high school, but it's time for me to go home. I know my parents are expecting me, but I can't find the way. I'm getting lost somewhere in this old village. I'm I'm walking through the streets and... And I see my friend Cornelia Becker's house in the distance. She's on the porch wearing a dress. An old dress. She's such a pretty girl with beautiful red hair. But she looks scared. Someone is watching us. She looks at me and then runs back into her house. I run forward to follow her inside, but the more I run, the further away her house gets. Then the fog starts to roll in and... I can hear voices. So many voices. Whispers. I'm getting a bit lost and confused. And I can feel a presence nearby. Are you still in the village, Rebecca? No. I mean, it's hard to tell. The fog makes it hard for me to see anything in the dream. Sometimes I feel like the thing watching me is chasing me from behind. Other times... I feel like I'm walking right towards it. It knows everything about me. Does this... this thing watching you try to hurt you? No, no. It knows it could, but right now it just wants to watch me and stalk me. Soon I I realize I'm walking down an alleyway. 
There's water dripping down the sides and deep puddles in the street. I just keep walking down the alley, knowing that the end is coming soon, but I... Tell me, Rebecca, what do you think is at the end of the alleyway? I don't know, but I don't want to reach it. Why not? Because I'll be trapped, have nowhere to run. I'll be right where it wants me. The fog is lighter towards the end of the alley, and now I can see little bits of it. The thing, darting through the shadows of the fog. In the new dream, I can catch little glimpses of it. And what is it that comes out of the fog, Rebecca? What is it that's watching you? A demon. Back in the Himalayan mountains of Tibet. No, no door, Chief. No casualties, but we lost the targets. Whit Roberts deployed a paraglider off the cave ledge and was able to drift behind the mountain, blocking our line of fire. We think one of the immortals aided him in his escape. Under current wind conditions, they could be 40 to 60 miles to the southeast. I'll get the SAT team to run recon on that region and try to pick up something on our birds over Tibet. In the meantime, I want a detailed sweep of the month's cave you're in. The Chinese government sent a special ops team there several years ago. We need ago. a fucking extraction quickly. We don't have time to... Look, Whit Roberts is getting away. If he has one of the immortals helping him, then doorlock procedure may not affect them. If we lose them now, we may never get them back. I need an extraction, Hardwick. Black Door agent Celeste yes, Harris Hardwick. was livid that her operation had been a failure, but she wasn't about to give up yeah, easily. Whit Roberts and Sension were still in hunting distance, and Celeste wasn't going to give up now. Fine, we'll talk in an hour. Harris out. Who is that? The boss. And what did the boss say? He wants us to finish looking around. What is it you're looking for? Celeste stopped in front of Oberlin. I lost an earring. Corporal, watch these two. If they move, shoot them. Celeste Harris joined the other three Black Door operatives deeper inside the cave as they searched for clues as to what door number 12 was doing in Tibet, and more importantly, where Whit Roberts might be heading. 30 minutes later, she and her team returned to the front cave antechamber. Oberlin and Tully stood shivering and still under guard. Did you find your earring? Celeste walked closer to stand in front of Oberlin and Tully, while staring at a small laptop computer that was held by one of the other Black Door operatives. In the fading alpine light emanating from the cave entrance, Oberlin noticed the long, faded red streaks that ran down Celeste's face. Who are you? My my name is Jeffrey Tully, and this is Oberlin Sinclair. Hello. Why did Blackdoor hire you? Hire us? No, there must be some mistake. Nobody hired us, lady. We were kidnapped. Kidnapped? Wait, Roberts kidnapped you to Tibet. So he could just leave you here in an empty cave in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Well, not me, actually. He kidnapped Oberlin. But I, oh, so how did you get here? I, um, I jumped through this portal thing called a keyhole to get here, but see, I was in the Marianas Trench a few hours ago. Look, I know this all sounds crazy. No, no, keep going. This doesn't sound crazy at all. You certainly can't have anything to do with a global plot that threatens the human species. I'm, I'm sure you guys were just a bunch of innocent bystanders, aren't you? Corporal, what do we have? We ran biometrics on face and prints. Their cover checks out. See? He said your cover checks out. That has nothing to do with who you actually are. Look, I told you. I'm, I'm just... I'm just a washed-up boat captain. Oberlin's my first mate. 
I do charter runs out of Homer, Alaska. I, I got nothing to do with what's going on. Commander, I found this on him. The soldier handed Celeste a small black brick-like device that he had fished out of Tully's pocket. Her eyes tightened for a moment in scrutiny of this strange object that seemed much lighter than it appeared. For a split second, Tully thought he saw her eyes grow wider in amazement as she examined the object from all angles. Finally, she turned to the operative. Hold them here and uh, don't let them take anything else out of their pockets. Celeste Harris left the antechamber of the cave entrance to walk back deeper inside the cave to confer with one of the other D-20 operatives. After ten minutes, she returned and stood in front of Oberlin and Tully, holding the device in her hand. What is this? Um... It's the new iPhone. I found it at this bar. This is a superconducting railgun using a liquid oxygen cooling system able to launch a frictionless projectile at ten times the speed of the highest power sniper rifle known to man. It'll also tell me where my friends are, what the weather is in Bangkok, and the closest bar serving happy hour. What's the big deal? The big deal is that any government in the free world hasn't invented it yet. Even the casing is constructed out of a carbon ceramic polymer that's only been theorized. I'm not sure I get the point. The point is that I don't think you're some washed-up boat captain from Alaska. This alcoholic loser act isn't fooling anyone. I think both of you work for Wit Roberts, and I think you don't give a fuck. No, no, not at all. You've got it all wrong, Miss Harris. Well, the alcoholic part's true. Wit Roberts works for Black Door, not us. We wouldn't do anything like what you just said. We just, we just want to go home. Agent Harris put her Sig Sawyer P226 pistol back in its holster. Then why don't you start by telling me what the two of you were doing here? Look, I got kidnapped by Whit Roberts. What Tully told you was true. I don't really understand what he was doing here, but he said it was a rescue mission. That's all we know. We swear it's all we know. Well, I guess that's your final answer. Thanks for playing, Tully. You too, Overland. Celeste turned and began to walk away. So, what happens now? What do you mean? We're packing up, leaving, absconding to the next undisclosed location. No, no, I mean, what are you going to do with us? Nothing. Leave you here. Can't kill you. You haven't done anything wrong, right? Agent Harris picked up her rucksack and started to walk towards the cave entrance as the other operatives collected their equipment and quickly followed behind her. Whoa, whoa, lady. Tully ran forward and roughly grabbed Celeste's arm. Hey! 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 Let him go! That's Agent Harris. Look, I'm... I'm sorry. Agent Harris, you, you, you can't just leave us. Watch me. Please, if... If you and your team just leave, we've got no way to get out of here. I mean, we'll freeze to death within hours. We'll die before we even reach the path to Tingri. That's pretty much the plan. Or you could tell us what the hell you were doing with Whit Roberts. Agent Harris, if you don't- Look, I don't know who the hell you are. Even knowing about Black Door's existence makes you an incredible liability. The two of you just disappearing on a remote mountaintop and freezing to death is, quite frankly, the best thing that's happened to this operation all day. Look, I- I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just a boat captain, seriously. It's a really long story, but I swear it's true. We got nothing to do with this thing that's going on. Have fun cuddling to stay warm. Celeste zipped up her goose down parka and walked out of the cave into the Himalayan mountains. Look, please don't leave us here. We've been through enough. Agent Harris, Agent Harris, at least give us a jacket, please. Agent Harris, I know about the aliens, the Seraxians. 
The Black Door assault team reappeared at the cave entrance. Celeste Harris took a few slow steps forward, considering Tully and Oberlin. What did you say? The aliens. They're the cause of all this, aren't they? The extraterrestrials? Celeste stared at this odd man, dressed in jeans and a t-shirt in the middle of a hidden Tibetan monk's cave in the Himalayas. He wasn't supposed to be here. Neither was his friend. Something from her training made her believe him. Look, I swear, I'm not part of Black Door, or Whit Roberts, or anything. Oberlin and I are just mixed up in something we don't understand, and we just want to go home. I'll tell you whatever you want. Talk. You're looking for Whit Roberts, right? I'd love nothing more than to see that son of a bitch dead. Me too. I can help you. I think I know where he's heading right now. I can also tell you what he's trying to do. Tell me. No, I need a plane ride. You gotta get me and my friend out of here. Get us out of Tibet and I'll tell you what you want to know. How do I know you're not bluffing? Because you're holding a ceramic polymer railgun in your hand that you know shouldn't exist. That's because the technology that built it came from someplace other than Earth. And you found that device in my pocket. You know the aliens are real. And you know I've seen them. And I know where Whit Roberts and Sension are going. You're holding the proof in your hand. Now, do we have a deal, Agent Harris? Will you get us out of here? Okay, Captain Tully. You've got yourself a deal. <sighs> 70 miles to the southeast of Mount Shenron. Oh. Sension and Whit Roberts entered a small clay brick building adjacent to a remote Buddhist monastery built along the Kula Gangri mountain ridge. Prayer flags snapped violently outside as the frigid Himalayan winds picked up again. The two men limped inside and each collapsed exhaustedly on a small pile of colorfully woven flaxen mats. Sension's shoulder ached and each breath pained Whit Roberts as his expanding chest aggravated his broken rib. A young boy wearing the orange robes of a monk entered the room and brought each man yak butter tea in a small steaming mug. Gotcha. The young monk nodded without making eye contact with the two western strangers and quickly left the room. This Tibetan tea tastes horrible. I told you, we're not in Tibet, we're in Bhutan. We flew 10 miles over the border. Well then, I don't know much about Bhutan, but I can safely say that their tea stinks. You know, you really astonish me. How about a little gratitude, Wit? That herdsman found us limping along the high ridge trail, carried you on his yak, invited us to his home, giving us shelter, which by the way is hiding us from satellite recon. You could be a little more forgiving. If I recall, you gave him a $75,000 Patek Philip automatic chronograph watch. I think that entitles us to a little more than a cup of tea. He didn't know what kind of watch it was. You probably thought it was a Timex. This is exactly what I mean. You totally missed the point, don't you? That farmer helped us because we needed help. When you give assistance, you make yourself richer. Even the poorest people know that wit. It's what humanity is based on. Or are you that far removed from it? <laughs> Save it for a fortune cookie, Sension. Ah, shit. Sension watched Wit bring his hand up sharply to the side of his ear and then draw it away. He stared at the small drops of blood that had accumulated on his hand. What happened to your ear? Occupational hazard. Wit, look around. You're not in Langley, you're not in that air fortress I've heard rumors about. We're in a small tea house in Bhutan, about a day's walk to the nearest road. You're badly injured and we're both trying to get warm, so do us both a favor and drop the asshole routine. I saved your life, you owe me that much. Remember that Irish guy down in the cave? Of course. Oberlin St. Clair. He works with Captain Jeffrey Tully. He ripped my ear off. Why did he rip your ear? Because we got into a fight. A very, very big fight. I can see that. It's not really about the ear. I don't care about that. Or my ribs, or my head, or any other wound in the line of duty. What got me was the loss of anonymity. I, 
have to wear a prosthetic ear now, just to go unnoticed. That hurts more than any injury or gunshot. Hiding came so easy to me. Now it's harder. And when it gets cold and stings, it makes me miss the shadows, where I was safe, where I was effective. Don't you ever get tired of it? Of what? The hiding, the running, the hunting, the constant concern of looking over your shoulder, always trying to figure out the next move. Doesn't it exhaust you? What? No. Maybe sometimes. But then I remember the reward of knowing that I have the privilege of making a difference in what I do. Black Door has that effect. You know, I used to have a job where nothing mattered. I got in my car and I went to work every day and nothing I did ever made a difference in the direction of the world. Do you know what that feels like, Senshin? To think that you'll never be special? To wonder if your existence even matters? But now, things are different. And the work I do for Black Door can change the course of history. So, no, I don't get tired of spycraft. But then again, I haven't been doing it as long as you have, Senshin. No, no you haven't. Trust me when I tell you that the glamour loses its luster when you start watching people you care for die in the process. You killed a lot of my people, Wynn. It was my job to defend the people and the things that I cared about, Senshin. Like America, other Black Door agents, other species of sentience that landed on this planet in peace. Immortality doesn't absolve you of sin, Senshin. You've got your own share of blood on your hands. The two men stared at the fire in silence and slowly sipped their tea. How long till your team can extract us? Anjali says there's a landing field to the south that could handle the Leviathan jet, but it might be a few days' walk given the terrain. There's not any proper roads in the section of Bhutan, and helicopter transport will draw too much attention. I'm sure whoever is after you, Wit, has a lot of resources and is combing through satellite intel trying to find us. The farmer said that he and his sons are traveling to Ladang the day after tomorrow. Our plan is to go with them and blend into a larger group. We need to move sooner. We need to rest, Wit. You just had a concussion and your ribs are pretty sore. Just walking won't be easy. Ascension? We don't have that much time. We can't just lose a day, no. Well, right now, I don't see that we have much choice. Who attacked us on the mountain, Wit? Back on Mount Shungla. Forgive me, but we didn't have a chance to exchange business cards, okay? Cut the crap, Wit. If you want me to help you, I need to know what we're up against and if they're going to keep coming after us. I assume it's door number 20. The enforcement door. They function as a type of internal affairs unit for the Black Door Group. They are the only ones in the world that know what goes on behind each of the other 19 doors. You mean you don't know? Each Black Door operates completely independently from the other doors. None of us even know the purposes or jurisdictions of the doors located right next to us. I know door number 13 is Sino-American Affairs and is headed up by Mai Lee. I know door number 16 concentrates on macro-military threats to the US and the Western and Middle East theater. And I don't know what the hell goes on in doors 5 and 7, but <laughs> there's always a really weird smell coming out of their doors. And you know door number 20 is enforcement. Right. Enforcement. You see, Black Door operates beyond the purvey of congressional oversight. We have access to a largest of funds that has been growing since our formation after World War II. We don't need to ask for permission for spending or doing what we need to do to protect America. Each door has an ongoing directive that can only be countermanded by the president or the CIA director. <laughs> the catch is neither knows or acknowledges to know about our existence. How can the CIA not know you exist? You're technically part of them. During the formation of the CIA in 1947, a security protocol was put in place to ensure the protection of an elite intelligence force tasked with protecting American interests when conventional channels and laws proved insufficient. The primary goal was to research, develop, and protect the country at all costs, against any perceived threat, using any means necessary and given all the resources possible. We fund ourselves through some legitimate businesses using shell corporations and, and some illegitimate ones. Perhaps. But since Black Door represents the root level of electronic security within the CIA, we have access to their entire database, as well as that of national and regional law enforcement, so we know how to not get caught. But that's what I don't understand. How can the CIA not know of your existence? 
because they don't know where to look. In an organization where everyone keeps secrets, the Emperor can have no clothes. We were there at the start, you understand. So everything that American intelligence has become has been built around us. It's like a house with thousands of additions. But we have always had a key to the back door. New tenants don't get to question the older residents who have already been there for decades, get it? Amazing what you've been able to pull off with. But each different door must carry a different level of exposure. Surely you must share information on an interdepartmental basis. All black door groups share two things, and two things only. The first is a single hallway in the basement of Langley. Hardly anyone ever goes there anymore. Awkward elevator rides. And second, we share access to a single mainframe located in an abandoned oil rig in the North Pacific. That mainframe produces a 3D dimensional map that can graphically illustrate where black door activity is taking place in the globe. It doesn't say who or which door or what the nature of the activity is, but we have a very detailed sense of exactly where other black door agents are operating. As such, we do our best to avoid one another. Why? Because of door number 20 the enforcement door. There aren't many rules within Black Door, but one of them is that we don't have the authority to kill or endanger other Black Door agents. If D20 can find two concrete examples, they alone have the power to initiate a door lock on the offending door. I've heard that word before. What exactly does door lock mean? It means the end of your door. Shut down. As I said, Door 20 is like internal affairs within Black Door. It was designed to have all the information about all the activities each door pursues. I don't know how they do it. I've always wondered, but they know every account we use, every alias, every operation of each of the other 19 remaining doors. When Door Lock gets initiated, it means all our accounts are frozen. No money. No ability to operate. Immortals. Always worrying about money. It also means an execution order. Every member of your door is given a burn notice along with a cleaning team that's sent to neutralize each member, no matter where on earth you are. Door 20 won't stop until everyone in your door is completely clean. So now you're a hunted man. Not for long. What do you mean? The young Bhutanese boy re-entered the room holding a cast iron tea kettle and gingerly poured Senshin more tea. Whit Roberts shook his head and declined. Are you sure you can find the aliens, Senshin? I mean, really find them? If they're still alive, I know how to find them. The tracking device Cindy is in New York. We need to get there as soon as possible. Why? Because Evangeline will be trying to find the aliens as well. She was obviously keeping the aliens prisoner to maintain the flow of Starstones to Leviathan. If she can't get the aliens back, she won't be able to perpetuate the immortality of her citizens. She'll lose all of her power. She needs to get the aliens back. If Evangeline gets to the aliens first, it could mean the end of the world, Senshin. I already told you that I have a jet landing a few days walk from here. You can't move any faster in your condition. Forget so me. Those keyholes that you immortals have, is there any limit to their operating distance? No. No, we've had matching keyholes scattered in all corners of the globe. So Evangeline or others from Leviathan could already be in New York? Well, theoretically, but no. No, that can't be. Evangeline had the keyhole network shut down after the rebellion. That's what you think. Benu had several keyholes reopened as he secretly partnered with Black Door to release the aliens. Jeffrey Tolley just leapt through one to get to Tibet. I can tell you for a fact that several keyholes are operational as we speak. Well, unless you know of one in Bhutan, we can't get to New York any faster. Maybe we can't, but I know someone else that can. You have been listening to Season 2 of The Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. To listen to the entire first half of Season 2 right now and get exclusive storyline, purchase the director's cut of Season 2 at leviathanchronicles.com. 
All right, and that was chapter 27 of the Leviathan Chronicles, uh, setting up the scene for our further adventures in the series um, as the Leviathan recoils with their loss of their leader. Um, we spoke to Christoph Laputka um, and Robin Shore, Christoph, the creator of Leviathan, about a week ago to talk more about their show. Uh, we bring him right in. All right, well, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Uh, this evening, I've got the huge pleasure of uh, welcoming back Christoph Lepotka, the creator of Leviathan Chronicles, to the show. Hey, Christoph. Good, and and joining him today is also Robin Short of the Sound hey, Designer how you doing, with Fred? Leviathan Chronicles. Hey, Robin. Uh, good. They're both joining us from Silver Studios hey. in New York. How's is that right? Silver Sound. Awesome. And um, th- that's where you, Silver is Sound. That where you did most of the, the voiceover for the production. I know you guys have been to many locations and we'll get into that. Um, but, but did you do most, is like the cast, for instance, uh, mostly New York based? Uh, at this point, no. <laughs> well, we, we started out a couple different ways. I mean, the when we first started doing Leviathan, uh, the idea was we only wanted to hire New York actors and we had a, a, a big audition and we were recording everybody kind of in my apartment um, and, uh, and then kind of delivering the audio tracks to Silver Sound Studios and to Robin, um, who then would, uh, would kind of you know, make the cuts of the, the dialogue tracks and then that started adding all the post-production. But, but now we do it like very differently. Uh, yeah, now, oh geez, it's a huge mixed bag. I mean, we've got a lot of actors who we've never even met face to face who uh, record on their own. Our main character is out in L.A. You know, we, we, we still probably have like 15 actors, 20 actors in New York that right. that Nobi records. Nobi right. Nakanishi is the director of Leviathan. So he, this this uh, is all very fun, and I want to talk about this um, technical aspect more in a moment. But um, uh, Christoph, quickly recap us. Uh, you know, we have heard bits of Leviathan season one, and we've uh, the audience will have heard some of season two. Uh, for people who are just sort of bouncing around and, and catching just one episode, do you want to just fill in uh, the, the 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 couple minute version of the Leviathan epic that you? You've designed here. Sure, uh, the Leviathan Chronicles is a full cast audio drama that focuses on an immortal civilization known as Leviathan that's located uh, deep under the Pacific Ocean in the Marianas Trench, and it's uh, somewhat of a utopian society um, uh, that is uh, populated by these immortals. And at one point, about seventy years ago a civil war breaks out between two factions of immortals, one that want to continue to live sequestered um, and and in this utopian society, and the other half wants to reintegrate with mankind, with with the mortals that live on the surface. And um, and so a rebellion occurs where um, a large number of immortals break away and reside um, uh, in a headquarters in New York City. But at the same time, a uh, kind of nefarious division of the CIA known as the Black Door Group discovers the existence of these immortals and uh, deems them a threat to U.S. sovereignty. And so a three-way war kind of breaks out that takes place across the globe as uh, the immortals kind of wrestle with um, uh, trying to survive while um, the Black Door Group kind of has their, uh, their own agenda that they're trying to fulfill. Uh, so that's really the 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 overlying uh, uh, story behind Leviathan Chronicles. And what's happened now is what, what's happened recently is we just released season two of the Leviathan Chronicles, which is the next twenty five chapters in uh, in the saga. 
And this is uh, kind of taking a different tone where we were kind of setting up the universe in the first 25. Now things are getting a little bit more dire. So the utopian society is, uh, is now in danger of collapse because of um, a traitor that was in their midst that they didn't recognize. Um, and, uh, and the Black Door group has been kind of excommunicated from the CIA, which makes them even more desperate and even more deadly. So kind of everybody is, is on the ropes right now after all of the, the drama of season one. So season two has a much more darker, much more active, much more um, uh, visceral feel to it than what we did. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that a really nice, really concise summary. And, and just uh, I hope people come away with that, of realizing like what uh, uh, an epic adventure they're, they're getting in with Leviathan Chronicles. And there's a lot I think we could talk about just the state of media today and how rare it is to find any kind of property, whether it's a uh, novel or TV film or whatever that has, you know, that, that is as richly imagined as Leviathan, you know, where you have all, all you know, all the, all the factions thought out quite well, all the backstories of these, you know, even kind of minor characters that get, they get into trouble in the ch- chapter 27, um, you know, having little asides. Uh, it's, it, did you realize what you're getting yourself into Christoph when you started this whole thing? You know, I'd like to say I did, but there's absolutely—I don't think any of us knew what um, what Leviathan was going to become. Um, it started out kind of as an, an experiment between Robin and I, where we said, "Look, let's just—you know—if we had all the time and all the money in the world, let's just take four episodes and see how great you could really make it. Uh, just, just, just for—you know—just for giggles. Let's see what we can produce." And and after spending, you know, quite a few months working on the first four episodes, and we listened to the final product, we we're like, "Hey, this." <laughs> this actually sounds pretty good. Why don't we want to do another twenty like this? And and um, you know, and 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 the process has evolved a lot. We can talk about that more later. We've we've really gotten our production mechanism and our, our the way that we produce these episodes down to yeah to yeah. And it's certainly uh, you know, it, it certainly is something that has uh, just as, as our medium, we've seen this 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 grow. That there's an audience out there for it. People are hungry for this kind of content, and I think it speaks to what you can do. You know where you're, you know, uh, sort of hopping, you know, globe trotting all all across the world, going to the depths of the ocean, uh, you know, traveling through time. I mean, this is a multi multi million dollar CGI effects you've got going on. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, it's funny we um, at one point we're talking to some people that do um, that do film work out on the West Coast, and they were trying to pitch me on this idea that if we created a a video trailer for Leviathan that they could try and get a get a Hollywood deal for us, and and we've gotten we've had a lot of people come in and, and try and sell snake oil, but you know I actually spent a lot of time developing this this trailer script, this like you know like three minute version of of Leviathan, and when they gave me the cost of it, I mean Leviathan um, you know has has a dollar cost to produce, but what um what they quoted me for like to to do what we talked about doing in three minutes, I could pay for. You know, yeah. two seasons and of, and of so, you know, and some of us find it much it was, more it gratifying ridiculous. just to hear a good story than to. Absolutely, and it wouldn't have even done anything. It w- it wouldn't have even amounted to anything. Um, um, so a, a so let's let's talk about um, I guess the the story part of it. I mean, obviously, you left us with a, a killer cliffhanger at the end of season one. So I imagine that. Christoph, you, you you were hoping you would do more episodes, uh, but you know how much of the, the the arc of season two did you really have in mind, and how much did you sort of have to uh, you know create and sculpt as you started to figure out what you wanted um, season two to to do and to sound like? <laughs> 
You know, the, the answer is I, I always had, I always knew where I wanted season two to start and, and season two to end. So I had a pretty clear sense of the overall direction, but I didn't necessarily know how all the characters were going to, were going to end up there. So, um, you know, while, while, while I, had, I had a good outline, uh, there were definitely a lot of details that, that kind of um, came as, as, as I wrote it. And, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I take a very shotgun approach to writing where when I'm writing a, a chapter, I'll often write just the parts. I won't write it sequentially. I'll write a scene here and then a scene that takes place beforehand, and that'll lead me into you know, another scene that could happen later. And, and I, it's almost like you're, you're painting different parts of a canvas um, that aren't related to each other, and then you, you kind of tie it all together. And, and that's, how, that's how I've always written. Um, I know some people kind of like write chapter one, two, three, four, and five, and I, I'll write five, three, two, um, six, one, and, and that's just, and, and to me, I think the, the act of writing usually, um, usually provokes better writing or, or if I'm stuck on a problem, you know, f put that aside, write what you know, and then. Okay. And so then aspiring writers out there, this is a completely new approach to writing. I've never heard about, and I've been to so many stupid writers conferences. <laughs> so, uh, that, that's really, really fun. And so, um, and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it has been, uh, some time since season one was released. How much of that was was writing it, Christoph, and how much of it was building this, building all the other things uh, you know that I know that go into a production like this. You know, I, I'd say that the it's been two years since we we released um, new regular content. We released what we call special edition episodes since then, um, but but the, it's really been two years since we've been back. You know, kind of back in the market, and. I'd say the first year to nine nine months maybe was definitely the writing, but you know I, I think Robin would be interesting to kind of talk about the evolution of Chapter Twenty Six. I mean we we worked on that episode six months probably not yeah. not exclusively, but like we kept chipping away. And I remember the first time I listened to Chapter Twenty Six, I thought we had lost all our mojo. I didn't like the way it sounded. I thought everything was nothing came together. And and we started chipping at it and working at it, and I think we both now agree it's the best episode yeah, we've I ever think done. It's the best one we've ever done. <laughs> it's it's the greatest episode of Leviathan we've ever produced, and um, probably because we spent seven months on it on on one thirty minute you know audio you know audio yeah. episode. But um you know but but in doing that we started realizing okay this is how we want the rest of the season to sound, and we were experimenting with different kind of dialogue timing and different yeah. uh, soundscapes and and we how learned, did you get you know when when do you do come into the process robin and, you know is, is christoph sharing his notes as he develops it or does he you know like 26 for instance do you have the whole whole thing like when do you, you know how how closely are you working it's it's changed a lot you know when we first started in season one uh, I think he was even hesitant to tell me what was going to happen in the next episode. <laughs> I don't know if he wanted to try to keep me on the edge of my seat or whatever. I, I want like, to keep you entertained. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, eventually he opened up a little more about where things were going. And when we finished season one, we both talked about how, like, the biggest hurdle we'd had all along was that, you know, it was so start and stop because he would write an episode, then we'd produce it. And then we'd have to start again, and you'd have to write the next one. None of the episodes were written before we really started. So, you know, we said, like, look, you got to write this stuff beforehand so we have a bigger plan. And that still 
didn't quite happen. Mm-hmm. The writing didn't quite hit the pace we wanted. Like, you know, we still didn't finish the whole season. It wasn't all scripted before we started production. But, you know, basically, as soon as he finishes a script, I start working. What we do is we record a guide track even before we record the actual actors, just so we can start playing around with, you know, dialogue timing, sound effects timing. And why don't we say um, what a guide track is? Uh, so the guide track is uh, we have our narrator record all her parts, and then Christoph just records a straight read-through with his own voice of the whole script. And that and that's a guide track that, that allows... It allows both Robin and and Luke Allen, who's uh, who also works, who's our composer and also works in our post production, to essentially have a, a, a framework. So, so we know, tracks. you know, we know how things are going to time out. Um, we know if there's going to be any particular sound design problems, and we can start playing around with what kind of music we want and where we want music for the scene. And the reason why that's such a big change from what we used to do, Fred, is you know we used to we used to write it, and then it would go to Nobi, and it would take Nobi maybe you know four weeks to get all we you know maybe 15 20 actors well 15 actors in a given chapter he would get all those actors before it even went to silverstone so they were waiting four weeks for or three to four weeks for that to happen before before standards are going to even work and so everything was just you know we, we hadn't gotten into the right flow and now once i finish the script um robin's able to work luke's able to work and nobody's able to work and so we're we're really firing in all. And uh, so, uh, Robin, really, to give you a little the, bit of room to play here with, uh, you know, with sound design, are you are you actually going and doing the dialogue editing too? Or are you, you know, obviously, uh, Christoph, you know, is working with the, the the timing and whatnot. But I do the dialogue editing uh, along with uh, our other person on the post production team, Luke Allen, who's in Texas right now. But yeah, I mean, once we we have that guide track. Uh, as soon as uh, the actual actors' voices come in, I start editing them in and taking out the guide track. Uh, so yeah, so the dialogue editing in terms of post-production is probably the thing that takes the longest. And you know, when we first started, we were trying to do more of recording more actors in the same room. And because of the way things have gone, it's become a lot of just you know getting individual takes of each actor. And, yeah, you know, yeah, which is which is them which you can do, the whole you know, scene. really quite well these days, and and uh, yeah, um, and we we could have a whole That's little uh, workshop on that because I know uh, you know there there are people who've executed poorly on that, and there's people who've done some really amazing results, you know, working with casts all over the world. Um, so and and, I, and frankly, I think a lot of uh, you know radio and TV work is 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 like that. I know plenty of. Uh, friends, you know, colleagues or voice actors who, you know, are phoning in lines from Maine to, to L.A. and whatnot, and that's just the way it's done. So I think people who are used to it on a professional level, it's just just how you do it. It's not it's not not that not uh, that unusual, you know. So it's funny because I think uh, you know if you kind of get the vibe from the Leviathan Chronicles fans, a lot of people f- were chomping at the bit for new content for years on this. But if you, th- for me, knowing the producer side of it. You know, taking two years to to produce what you've produced is quite an impressive accomplishment. It is not at all a project that seems like over, uh, you know, that like it dragged on and on. I mean, that's a pretty impressive timetable for what you've accomplished. Is is, is that kind of how how you guys feel that? Oh, Fred, we want to li- we want to lift you up in in the air and 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 smother you in hugs and kisses right now because, um, no, I mean, I, I think a lot of people. 
you know, put us in the same category as some of the, you know, patio books or, or, um, or, or audio book categories where, you know, if all it was was reading the story into a mic, sure, you'd have Leviathan, you know, uh, 18 months ago. But, um, you know, we, we, this is very, very similar to the, the timeline of what it takes to make a um, make a television show and if i was going to if i was going to produce a a you know a seven hour yeah. movie and, and you know even even writing it could be a two-year a project let alone pulling together do you see like 60 actors you know and 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 all all the logistics and all the in in sound design yeah. I and mean, that's 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 quite an accomplishment so let's just let it for the record let it be said i'm quite impressed with what you've pulled off <laughs> um well let's let's talk about Thank some some much. some fun fun war stories i know kind of like it seemed like your penultimate moment in in season two was this massive trip where you uh were all locked down in austin texas in post-production you want to talk about that <laughs> yeah so we, we we got to the point where you know uh nobody's in new york i'm in new york robin's in new york luke is in is in texas and and it was just sort of hard to to kind of get everybody in the room working at the same time. And, and Robin, um, you know, is very busy doing other, working on other projects here at Silver Sound. And, and I decided, look, we, we need to all take a leave of absence and go down to Austin. We're going to rent a house. Austin's where Luke lives. So we had a choice of either. Right. We could bring Luke to New York or we could go to Texas. And A, I wanted to get out of New York anyway. But <laughs> the way I look, it was like, look, if I stay in, if we stay in New York, there's going to be other distractions of our normal lives here. Yeah. Like we're not going to get as much done. We should just go down to Luke. And it was and and not mention the fact that yeah. it was uh, I'd rather be in <laughs> get, get your fill of barbecue than, than New York City. But um, but it was it was a great you know it it was it was a great adventure both personally and professionally. I mean we so we had so much sound equipment. Uh, Robin and I had to drive down from um from new york to austin so that took us about what three days, three days. um and, and one of the highlights was we found this great um web app called called famous food and what it does is it cross references your location with all the restaurants they've featured on the food network and travel channel so so essentially robin became a food critic for about 36 hours while we were driving down and we found a place called uncle lou's fried chicken which was uh this uh, this like you know, three hundred pound guy that is like, he he was great. So we pull into Memphis and it's you know we we've been driving for ten hours, and 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 it was this great fried chicken shack. And the guy came out was like this this local legend. And we have photos that we posted on the Leviathan Facebook page. And like it it, it became like it became a food odyssey driving down to Austin. Like like which. You know what food hadn't we had at which fast food chain, and it was uh, it was great. So we got down there. We we had a, we rented a house, and we turned the living room into a soundstage and, and and a workstation. Essentially, yeah. And uh, and one of the bedrooms downstairs, Luke kind of commandeered as his office. And uh, in the mornings, I'd wake up, and from about eight to eleven, I'd go to this one coffee shop and do a lot of my writing. Well, yeah, you you had it easy. You didn't need to be in front of the screen, so you would just go onto the roof. And <laughs> yeah, I did. We had a we we had a roof deck, and uh, yeah, I got. I guess I did get the better end of that, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I set up a workstation and a few microphones in the living room, and uh, basically was sitting there six days a week. But, I mean, just being there all together was just, like, amazing because we're not usually – it 
it felt so much more collaborative than it usually does because we'd all, you know, work during the day and then at night we'd listen to an episode and we'd all make notes and decide yeah. what. So, so tell me about some of the fun stuff that you get to do, Robin. Like, do you did you do you create up the soundstage and actually uh, generate sound effects? Do you you know source them from libraries? T- talk about your life. Oh God, I wish I could generate more of the sound effects. Um, I would say about somewhere between 60 and 80% of our sound effects are from a sound library. I mean, I do generate sound effects. You know, at this point though, we've been doing this so much that like, you know, I, I just have a lot of the, a lot of the sound effect editing is sort of on just like default for me at this point. Like, oh, someone, you know, I know I need this sound for the sound of them sitting down in a chair. I, you know, like I, I sort of have my library of Leviathan sounds in my head um, that it's, I, you know, I grab from a lot of the same sounds. If you were listening close enough, you would hear, you know, the same sound effects in every episode. I try to vary it up, but... But actually, there was one sound effect that you uh, did go out to record to generate for yourself. Well, there have been a couple, but... For the the, the subway. Oh, that was was actually one of the most difficult ones to get, was uh, subway announcements in New York City, because subways are so damn crowded here, it's hard to find a quiet one. Um, but we knew we needed absolutely, you know, we are from New York. We, this is a New York podcast. We needed the real sounds of the New York City subway. It was, um, uh, it was pretty challenging. So, yeah, so I went. I recorded specific announcements for all the stations we needed. I recorded the doors closing. Uh, I recorded, you know, all the weird beeps and stuff. Uh, and then I am also very lucky to have a friend who does uh, urban exploration, <laughs> which is basically where he crawls around in subway tunnels. And through him, I was able to get, I didn't actually go with him to get these, but these amazing sounds of, you know, trains in the tunnel from a perspective you would never get anywhere else. This, this guy, your friend's not a member of Leviathan, is he? And the brakes going off. <laughs> he could be. Maybe the Black Door group. No, he is not. <laughs> he is. Oh, that's, 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 that's fantastic. So, you know, you, you have enough of, uh, enough you you know where the effort to get the right sound makes makes the difference, and that's uh, and I guess on that topic, you you said you had some really specific kind of aesthetic kind of goals, um, and I, I don't know if, which you like want to talk about that kind of. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think in general, one thing that we we try really hard to do, and that. You know, when we've listened to other audio dramas, it seems like everyone always has a hard time with this, and I think we pull it off pretty well, is really conveying, the, you know, physical action, you know, yeah. fight scenes, gun gunfights, chases. Like, you really want to, like, be able to hear all this stuff happening and also have some idea of what's happening. It's easy to throw in a bunch of sounds for that type of stuff but sort of confuse the listener with what's actually happening. We always want people to have a specific picture of the action in their mind. And sometimes we do that by putting in a little bit of narration. So um, we can be, you know, Fred threw the punch and uh, it landed, um, knocking her over and, you know, spilling right. the jelly beans everywhere. But we've really sort of evolved the way we've used the narrator because um, it used to be much more like what Christoph just said of her describing an action and maybe there'd be a sound effect or two before or after And one of our big focuses recently has been trying to sort of weave the action and the narration together to create these sort of montages 
so that you're always hearing something going on that's not necessarily exactly the same as the narration, but sort of evocative. Yeah, um, evocative so that was all, you know, that, 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 that sort of the crunch the time was back in January. Now it's April and you've got um, the so the first half is available now. Um, the, so you've you've decided to release them in, in, in two director's chunks um, as well as the, 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 the podcast chapter. So that, you know, you've done a lot of really interesting things with the whole project. Um, not the least of which is the way you've chosen to release it. So why, why don't we get into that uh, whole aspect of it? Sure. So right now there's two ways to listen to Leviathan Chronicles. You can uh, go to our iTunes feed uh, where we will be releasing one new episode every two weeks. We uh, released Chapter 26 uh, about 10 days ago, and we'll be releasing uh, Chapter 27 uh, uh, on Sunday. So... Um, so we're going to continue to release chapters for free um, on kind of a, a periodic basis. But um, for those listeners that don't want to wait every two weeks for their episodes, we're, uh, we released what we call our director's cut of season two, the first half of it. It's the first 13 episodes, and it contains over one hour of bonus content that we don't put into the free podcast. So it's extra storyline, extra scenes, um, and we think it really just kind of enhances the, uh, the overall the overall story. So you can listen to all seven and a half hours at once. And the reason we did it that way is because we didn't want to wait much longer to, uh, to release all these episodes. So we, we wanted to kind of get it into people's hands quicker. And there seemed to be a natural kind of story arc that, uh, that occurred in the first 13 episodes. So we figured this was a, a, a good way to kind of re-familiarize everybody with Leviathan um, and, uh, and get ready for when we get to uh, our season finale. So, um, so the two ways you can go to LeviathanChronicles.com and pick up the director's cut of season two. Or you Excellent. As you've been able to hear from it, it is absolutely totally kick-ass. Um, and I think that's, and I think that's a pretty cool, you know, a lot, you know, uh, Leviathan has long pro- since proven itself, but there are uh, a lot of shows out there that sound promising, that seem like they've got a good concept and maybe they've got the technical skills, uh, but then kind of just fade away. Um, which is just sort of this, you know, these all these like little uh, ghost towns on the internet of empty podcasts, and, Levi- and you, you, you've proven you, you've got season two is in the can. It is happening. You're you're gonna get it. And I love this uh, almost kind of like that Netflix model where you can just totally just uh, gorge out right now. Go to LeviathansChronicles.com, put on your headphones, and just you're got you've got some awesomeness. Just inject yourself <laughs> with this world. <laughs> We, we appreciate it, and you know, I, it, it's just been, you know, all all the members of the team have worked so hard and, and, and really sacrificed a lot of their their time and energy to to bring the story to life. And it's um, you know, we 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 don't want to release anything until it really meets our standards. And um, and and, and to, for all the guys, for Noby, for Robin, for Luke, and I. Um, all right. Well, that that to, that is absolutely awesome. We can't wait to hear more. I'm got more listening to do on my own end um christoph robin thanks so much for joining me tonight and thanks so much for the the wonderful audio you've brought to us we are gonna dig it there's not enough that's not enough of this stuff that's this good uh really appreciate it fred so great to be on your show thanks for having us all right and that was robin shore and christoph laputka christoph the creator uh robin the sound designer for leviathan chronicles leviathanchronicles.com as you heard plenty of ways to hear that show director's cut uncut more uh good stuff this is one of the more exciting projects we've uh seen in our life is a serial 
audio drama podcast, and it's super excited to see that season two has come to be. Hope you'll enjoy that very, very much. Um, and uh, more and more shows coming down the pike next week. Uh, another really awesome new series uh, to introduce you to called Hot House Bruiser. Uh, in the meantime, over 250 hours of original audio drama programming at radiodramarevival.com. You can follow us on Twitter, hit up at radiodrama. Find us on Facebook, Radio Drama Revival. We're on both the iTunes Store and Stitcher Radio. Search for Radio Drama. And if you'd be so kind, tell your friends. Uh, leave us a review. Uh, do what you can to help the cause. Uh, we do this because of folks like you listening, and we sure do appreciate it. Um, all right. Uh, and that's a wrap. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalgh. Copyright of individual shows remains that are original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates an on-air radio at WMPG-FM. That is Southern Maine's community radio. His podcast at radiodramarevival.com is labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week.